we are in the condition we are in, in the state of ignorance we are in, in the state of war, in the state of economic depression, in the state of depletion of the resources of our planet because of the greed of psychopaths who thought they could create their own reality. Well, look at the reality they created. You're listening to The Truth Perspective on the Soft Radio Network, the world for people who think. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to The Truth Perspective. It is Saturday, March 19th, the year of our Lord, 2016. And we're back talking about why Daesh is doomed and other tales of failed terror states. So we're going to be talking about some current events and continuing the discussion that we had last week on radicalization, kind of getting into some stuff um, taking it in some new directions or similar directions, just going a bit further along the path. In the studio today, we've got a full house. We've got all SOT editors in the room. Not every SOT editor, but all of the people in the room are SOT editors. Starting at my 12 o'clock, we've got Corey Schenk. Good day, everybody. Shane Lachance. Hello. Carolyn McCallum. Hi. Elon Martin. Hi, everyone. And I'm Harrison Cayley. Thanks for joining us on another edition on our new radio.sot.net system. So we're happy to be here. We're very pleased with the quality. And as a reminder, you can call in and speak with us, ask a question, give a comment, kind of whatever you want to say within reason. You just, speak, you just click the Speak with the Host button. It's right below the title of the show. It's blue. It's got a microphone on it. You'll need a microphone on your computer to talk with us so we encourage you to call in at any time and do so so first of all in the news since we last spoke there have been uh, a couple interesting developments in the world stage on the world stage um, probably the biggest one has been the withdrawal of the of part of the russian military force that has been stationed in syria so this, um, well, I think it kind of came out of nowhere for a lot of people. Um, when I read the news that day, I was like, what? Oh, wow. And pundits heads exploded everywhere. <laughs> yeah. But it, <laughs> well, that's the thing, too, though, that the, you know, when you look at uh, Western media, they, they hardly covered it, which, which, I mean, is in line with, you know, how they covered uh, Putin going into Syria and as well as the, you know, the entire time they've been there. They've they've hardly talked about it. You know, you have you have a few commentators here and there discussing it, but you know, it, it, and you know, pushing the propaganda and putting the worst possible spin on it. But you know, he he can't do anything right apparently because you know, uh, going to Syria, he's going to be uh, involved in a new Afghanistan, and he's going to be embedded forever. So he pulls out and, uh, you know, he, he's, he's withdrawing because the economy is awful in Russia and uh, they're cutting their losses. Well, all of which is fake or, and just not true. A bunch of nonsense. Because yeah. the, the Syrian operation actually came out of the existing Russian military budget and it was something like a 50th of the budget. So they actually they didn't devote any extra resources, any extra money to the operation. They just devoted a portion of the actual budget to it. Which makes sense, you, you know. And they got they got a lot of value out of it. Um, I was got an article up here. Maybe we'll get to in a little bit. But it um, 
uh, when talking about all the pluses, um, tangible and intangible, they got to get rid of a lot of obsolete weapons because, you know, this wasn't such a complex opponent that they had to drag out all their really cool stuff. Um, so to replace that, that's a boost for the local economy. They got lots of tactical experience in a terrain that they've never really worked in before. They got to show the world that this is not the 1990s anymore, you know, with this demilitarized rust bucket of an of organization. Um, the pluses have been enormous. And uh, the, they did get to showcase, you know, some, some new weaponry, which <laughs> which did – which you know I think is uh, was a great thing because you know that's going to supplement um, you know they have a lot of interested buyers in some of their their new weapons um, you know to include uh, Iran and you know that's a uh, Iran and China and you know the the relationship with Iran I think is is interesting because you know they're they're this uh, they are their competitor in terms of oil but. Uh, and, and I think we can get into this a little bit later in the show. Um, you know, it, it even though they are this competitor with the Iran, whereas to oil, they they do want to see. I think they want to see uh, Iran succeed in in their goals. You know, as a country, and and in large part, you know, kind of uh, help them counter the other significant influence in the Middle East, which is Saudi Arabia. Um, but that, that's that's going to be a topic we're going to kind of dig into. Well, so, I think when we talk about the withdrawal, we should uh, also just acknowledge that it's um, it is a partial withdrawal. Uh, there are still Russian forces uh, on the ground, though greatly reduced in number. Um, there is there are forces that are still uh, assisting in uh, attacking uh, various factions uh, in Syria, um, but. Uh, really, I mean, this is something, if you think about it, it it's totally consistent with everything. Um, th this withdrawal is totally consistent with everything that Russia's been doing so far. Well, he got to score statesman, statesman's points, too, world, you know, on the world stage by saying, clearly laying out when they started, it's going to be three to six months. Mm -hmm. When we feel it's done, we'll leave. And he has done precisely that, although, you know, he hasn't left completely. And as a matter of fact, he did make the remark that should circumstances change, they could be back in hours. So, you know, there's no shut door there of any sort. Well, it's, it's such a, a foreign idea for, for us <laughs> Westerners to, that a leader will, one, do what he says he's going to do. And two, that, you know, um, that... This warfare, you know, war can can be done in a, in a justified way, which you know is, is against these these um, you know they're not well these terrorists maniacs maniacs um, and these, these and within mercenaries the boundaries of international law. I mean, this whole right. thing was legal front to back. Yeah, in a speech uh, this past week to the Russian military at St. George Hall in the Kremlin. Uh, Putin was congratulating military personnel on uh, the success of all of the of the actions that were taken. But uh, he also said some very interesting things, which I think speak to the fact that he knows it isn't over. Um, he said, I would like to stress that any group of violating the ceasefire will be taken off the list provided by the United States with all the consequences that come with it. 
Uh, he also said, we have created together with the American side an efficient mechanism to prevent air incidents, but all our partners have been warned that our air defense systems will be used against any target that we deem to be threatening Russian service personnel. I want to stress, any target. And then he went on to say, this experience will make it possible to introduce necessary changes to improve the efficiency and reliability of the equipment, to create new generation weaponry, and to improve the armed forces and enhance their combat capability. And he was talking about the Russian forces here. He goes on, life itself has shown that they are a reliable guarantee of our country's security. And he also spoke of needing to continue to prepare to avoid paying a, high, a much higher price later. And lastly, I thought this was particularly re relevant, he says, uh, I would like to note here, for this audience and for the entire country, Russia's main agenda today is that of peace. It has to do with developing the economy in complicated conditions, with maintaining and improving the well-being of our people. However, without ensuring our security, Without creating a battle-ready, modern, and efficient army and navy, we would not resolve a single task. Moreover, the very existence of a sovereign and independent Russia would not be possible without it. So I think what he's saying to his folks there in the military is, you know, we can be happy about what we just did, but be prepared to do much more in the near future. He knows who he's dealing with. Well, the, you know, the smart thing, too, is that by pulling out the majority of the forces, it does put, you know, an extra focus on a couple things. One is uh, the, the maintenance of the ceasefire. You know, Russia's not as embedded, so, you know, the, I'm sure that, the, you know, the U.S. and, uh, you know, and company were, were, had all sorts of plans that are now just... Uh, yeah, they're they're scrambling now. Now, now, what do we do? You know, uh, we can't we can't go ahead with uh, with our devious ways, uh, and you know, kind of got to restructure, which is basically what you know Putin's been doing all along. Is he's one step ahead all the time, and you know that that's just part of the the, the genius of you know his strategies, and um, and so you know, there's this political process that's that's going on and you know it also puts attention on um you know really focusing on the um the geneva conventions coming up and the the, the peace talks mm -hmm. so you know i i think you know those factors you know are are um you know really important ones when we're looking at you know the reasons why he's pulling out and um as well as what he's really accomplished i mean he's accomplished uh you know uh, well the russian Russian military, as well as the the coalition, you know, they've made a lot of uh, advances and they've had a lot of successes, and you know, it's been pretty incredible to see in such a short period of time. Um, you know, the the infrastructure is for you know the um, all these terrorist cells is really uh, has been really you know taken a beating. Mm -hmm. And so, and, you know, and then there's also the other, I mean, he's, he's, so he's taken apart these, the infrastructure for these terror cells. He's, um, they've made uh, significant, they've won significant battles. Um, 
they've exposed the and also helped to destroy the major income um, of these terrorist operations with, with oil, um, you know, and Turkey's relationship with it. I mean, they, they've done they've done uh, a lot. Well, the, the other thing they managed to do is to show up the real caliber, which was abysmal, of the Americans' yes. effort in you know bombing the terrorists. You know, so they actually embarrassed them into actually doing some real bombing. Like you know, they'll bomb a tiny little convoy here, or they'll do something there, but they had to start doing something. And also, I think by pulling out, uh, if things start to slide backwards. Who's, who's the onus on for that? That would go back to the U.S., right? Because the U.S. is still there and they're bringing in ground troops and they're doing all this stuff. They're actually stepping up their presence. But if the situation deteriorates, it's not Russia's fault. And if there are, you know, if, uh, say, Saudi Arabia does go forward with putting ground troops in, Russia's not going to be, uh, you know, they don't have the ground troops in there. They have the, um, the Air Force still is going to be there and they're maintaining their base. Um, but, you know, things won't be as hairy, uh, I think, you know, going forward. Well, the, after this announcement, the Saudis made a few statements, one of which was that the, the plan to put ground trips into Syria was still on the table, but they would only do so, um, as part of the U S coalition. So I think, I think even Turkey and Saudi Arabia are kind of, backpedaling a bit. Of course, they'd like to do this, but whether it's possible and whether they will or not is another question. I just see the whole thing as another kind of um, PR success because, and it, it seems to me that, that it's not, well, it seems when you look at these things as if they must have been planned for a long time, like that the that uh, Putin and the and the PR people and the military all sat down at the table and just kind of went through all the stages, all the possibilities, and, and prepped for it. Mm -hmm. Because when they when they started the operation, like you said earlier, Carolyn, they they'd only ever planned for it to be three to six months. Mm -hmm. At least that those were the initial estimates. And the original plan wasn't to go in and just you know kill all the terrorists. Um, it was to to uh, reinforce the the Syrian army to get them back on their feet and mm -hmm. to basically because they were they were on the defensive at that point mm -hmm. and with with the threat of Aleppo and Damascus being kind of overrun by ISIS and so the Russians came in to to solidify the Syrian army presence and help them in their offensive and what they did for those months they did like a lot of I don't know the exact figures I didn't do the math but a, a large portion of the airstrikes were on the regions in Syria that are under so-called rebel control. So, and that was, that was natural, that was necessary, because when you look at where the Russian airbase is, it's in the western part of the country, in Latakia province, and that, that province was, well, in close proximity to that base were where the rebels were. So one of the first orders of business was to, to retake a lot of that territory in the western part of Syria to reestablish that kind of that uh, buffer zone for the for the Syrians and the Russians to 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 you know bring 
bring that that province under control, along with like uh, you know Homs, Hama, and Damascus, mm-hmm. and get those military bases back. Yeah, and so so that's what they did, and natu- and but because that was the goal. I mean, their goal was to to help Assad and help the Syrian army. They knew they were going to get bad press for that, and that's immediately what we saw. So the first news, as soon as these airstrikes started, was that Russia was bombing the moderate terrorists, and they weren't bombing ISIS. Now, they were always bombing ISIS positions at the same time, but they were focusing very strongly on the al-Nusra and the, the Free Syrian Army moderate rebel zones. So they were going to get that, that, uh, that criticism from, from their enemies. So what happened after that? They did that for a period of time, and then at some point, I can't remember if it was a month, two months later, they brought in a whole bunch more jets new jets, different types of jets, the, the bigger ones. And then they started with the long-range bombers. Uh, they brought in more helicopters. And they started um, in, embedding their, their uh, trainers, military trainers, and kind of special operations guys to, to, to help out the, the Syrian army on the ground, providing assistance with the Russian weapons that were being provided and to kind of help with strategy and, and tactics and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So... You have the, the Russians sending in a certain number of, of jets and personnel, upping that number, being criticized the whole time, and you've got the Western media and, and governments and spokespeople saying that, that the, they're in a quagmire, they're never going to leave, they're, they're not bombing ISIS. And so the Russians just kind of went with that. They countered the lies, of course, like they always do. But they just kind of went with it because they, they're not going to – their philosophy seems to be that we you – know, you can't – no one tells us what to do, and you can say whatever you want, but we're going to do what we're going to do, and there's that, and, that's and we don't it. care. And we don't care. <laughs> so they so they up their 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 number of jets in there, and then right on the day before the Geneva talks are going to start, they say, "Oh, hey, wait a second, we're taking the bulk of our forces out," or you know, they don't they didn't really specify how many they're taking out. So on the one hand, so so on the one hand, they're they're going against the the narrative. They so they are withdrawing, and th- that throws people into confusion. Oh, well, what, they're not in a, in a quagmire? They're not going to be in there like in Afghanistan? And, but it, it seems that... The, so the decision not only came at the right time, it, was also, it also was designed, it seems, to, to please everyone. Mm-hmm. Because like, if you look internally in Russia, but even externally at the rest of the world, you've got the people that wanted Russia to leave and that were, oh, you were bombing our, our moderate rebels. So Russia says, okay, we'll leave. We'll stop bombing your moderate rebels. So those people are happy. But then they say, oh, but we're also going to stay. We're leaving some of our guys there, right? And, and so what, what has happened since they've left, since some of the jets have left, is that they've concentrated their, their bombing now strictly on ISIS. So now they're doing what the West was saying they, shouldn't have, they, should, they weren't doing, but they should have been doing from the beginning. So now they're even, uh, the, the West can't criticize them for that. And the State Department has even said that, oh, well, you know, we've been monitoring the airstrikes in the region and we haven't seen any violations. Actually, all of the airstrikes that we've been seeing have been against ISIS. So, I mean, the, for the U.S. State Department to say that, they would never have said that three months ago. Mm-hmm. And now they have to say it because, again, the, the, the Russian PR machine, which is actually just dedicated to kind of telling the truth, but telling it in such a way that, um, you know, go... that. That um, supports supports the the mission, mm-hmm. so it's kind of got the best of both worlds. They they can't really say anything about it. So not only so it came at the right time, and it ple- it's kind of designed to please everyone. And it's just of course they're going to be, um, and there there have been more criticisms and um, 
you know, the, the same thing that we've been seeing the whole time. But it just, those tend to be, they seem to me to be being even weaker and weaker. And they they have, like, they're running out of legs to stand on. Like, now they're kind of walking around on toothpicks because they don't really have much um, much ammunition to use in that part of the information warfare game. When you talk about the, uh, just how organized and structured this whole entire thing comes across as in the Russian campaign and the intervention in Syria. Um, it reminds me of an article that came out a couple of weeks ago that talked about, you know, the fact that in the Russian government, everything that happens happens according to a very structured program mm -hmm. that, you know, when they make decisions like this, they bring in all the officers, all the, you know, colonels, lieutenants or whatever, and they make these decisions Whereas in the U.S., as the emails that have been released, you know, Hillary Clinton's emails have been released, have really drawn back the veil on how things work in the in the White House, which is basically you have this lame president who just bends over for anything. And, you know, his secretary of state, you know, back when they wanted to invade Libya, was she just basically took orders from some unknown person, um, you know, speaking through one of her secretaries to who basically, you know, said, this is what's going to happen. So you make it happen. And there's no structure. There's no order. It's a it's a snake pit, essentially, where, you know, they, they just um, act out orders from on high, you know, whatever uh, forces decide that, you know, this is the amount of money that we gave you. So we want you to do this or, um, you know, we have the clout here. So we want you to do that. Um, and so then you see the, you know, the outcome in how structured and organized the Russian campaign has been and how they accomplish their objectives, whereas, you know, in, in the West, you know, it seems so chaotic just because it is chaotic. It yeah. is literally a den of snakes that, you know, just are basically, you know, they'll devour each other or they'll devour uh, somebody else, but, you know, there's no real structure. Well, I also think, too, this is uh, from this article I'm looking at, and speaking of pundits' heads exploding, uh, this one guy named Alexander Bogdanov uh, wrote an, an analysis of of Russia leaving and why it was good and why it was bad. And he was so close on some things. And then you just kind of you read it, what he says, and it's like, oh, God, what's wrong with you? But he does make a particularly interesting comment about the dual realisms that uh, Putin is um, applying because um, – He's got to please his constituents like any other politician, and then he has to act for Russia's interest uh, on the world stage, and they're called global realism. Um, and the other one is called – where is it? Peripheral. Peripheral realism. Thank you. So they have to uh, – these two are applied. But speaking about you know Den of Snakes and, and the complete chaotic uh, actions of the U.S. government in large quotes – um, is, is the idea that both Russia and you can see this in China too know how to play a long game. They are old, old nations. They've seen it all before and they think in decades. They think in decades and this allows them patience and this allows them a certain flexibility. Um, and he talks about uh, the foreign policy of Russia is characterized by a combination of expansionary bursts, which I think is kind of unfair. Uh, they're not trying to collect new territory. Uh, Putin said that straight up. He said, we've got enough land. We don't need any more. We've got plenty to deal with. But I think in terms of expansionary, I think it would just mean um, securing the countries around you, securing their friendship, securing their, their 
um, not necessarily allegiance, but just the idea as as partners that, you know, you be your country, we'll be our country, we can help each other, but it does provide a bus buffer. But anyway, he characterizes it as expansionary bursts and subsequent tactical release, release, retreats when Russia voluntarily loses some of its gains, but not all. Thus, in every such retreat, Russia gains something. And I think this is this is uh, ex- a, a very good, you know, exposition of Russia's patience. They don't need to win everything, and they know when it's when it's time to back off, and then when it's time to move forward. And uh, after each burst of power, this is again from the article, Russia accustoms the international community to its enhanced status in the world system. So. They're, they're trying to play this, this double game, I think, of trying to work within the system. And at the same time, um, the great fear and the great accusation is that they are trying to upend the system. And one, uh, one U.S. pundit uh, wants, says that they want to rewrite the rules, which in a certain way is kind of true. Mm-hmm. They do want to rewrite the rules, but they're not going to rewrite them in terms of a confrontation you know, one hegemony against another hegemony. They're, they're on the one hand, securing their place in the world order as it stands and improving it whenever they can. But they're also, with with the BRICS and with all of the economic development partnerships with India, with China, they're, they are rewriting the rules, but they're rewriting them within their own sphere of influence. And I think they will just allow this other system to crumble on its own. They don't have to do anything. Yeah, like the, I'm looking at that article right now, and what the guy says, one of the quotes in here is that defeating the U.S. and building a model of a multipolar world, destroying unipolar hegemony at the, at the same time, are, for the supporters of this model, the strategic priorities of the Russian Federation. Global realism means the destruction or radical change of the existing unjust international system and the building of a new one based on Russian national interests in which Russia is one of the global poles. Uh, From this point of view, the logical pursuit of national interests, which cannot be fully fully realized in in the existing system, will definitely lead to harsh confrontation with the United States. So that's after that is where he says that uh, Putin seeks to create the rules of the game rather than trying to play by the old rules. So this is essentially, well, in, in a sense, um, Putin is trying to play by an existing set of rules. It's just a, rules, a set of rules that is not followed, or if it is stated, it is stated uh, hypocritically. It's, mm-hmm. it's said in words and then not followed. And that's one way to destroy it is to show up the hypocrisy by playing exactly by the rules. Mm-hmm. Right. One of the big things that Putin had on his side in his intervention in Syria is the very fact that Assad invited him in for assistance. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, all... Um, kind of mudslinging to the contrary and lies made about Assad uh, by the West, uh, the guy was still the democratic, democratically elected leader of Syria, and uh, Russia's presence in Syria was absolutely legitimate. And, uh, and Putin constantly cites international law whenever he addresses uh, Sir- Russia's participation in Syria. And, you know, no one can argue with that. I mean, they can lie about it. They can uh, they can say that Russia is bombing uh, innocent civilians in Syria, but uh, they can't say that he wasn't invited or that what he's doing is unlawful unless they are willing to uh, open themselves up uh, for 
you know, creating more blatant lies about what Russia is doing there. When you talk about the, the old order, um, it makes me think of the Varoufakis's book, uh, The Global Minotaur, where his basic uh, thesis is that the old order is already dead. Uh, the old order was basically American supremacy gaining all of the surplus wealth and materials of the world and devouring it and then reinvesting it through Wall Street and other countries you know, around the world trying to follow that model you know, so that they can become rich and you know, pursue never-ending development, you know, countries like Germany and, and Japan. Um, but basically, after the crash of 2008, um, there's been such, you know, that just destroyed that entire mechanism with all of the, the toxic debt and the, just the loss of economic power um, to go forward, you know, on debt. And, and now, after, you know, with such a uh, slow in demand, that old order is dead. And the only way to move forward, really, I mean, what Putin's doing is... He's not, you know, just trying to break out of the old order. I mean, he's trying, you know, what his actions are doing, what Russia's actions are doing through trying to create more of a mutual dependence between nations is creating that new order. It is the new order, essentially. Um, and it's, it's really the only way forward. It's probably the only way to, uh, to really escape the, the huge global um, malaise that was set in by the, you know, the derivatives crash and and the public debt crisis and all of the all of the um, insanity that's happened in the economy since. Well, this um, you know this new order you know that that Putin's really at the head of I think you know speaks to the perception of um, you know these these Western pundits who you know talk about Russia's expansion. You know it's it's <clears throat> it's not that Russia. On its own is is endeavoring in these uh, imperialistic uh, ways. You know, it is more the expansion of this different type of of world, where you know there isn't like this United States homogeneity. It, it, it's it's uh, made up of partners. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, going back to you know the, these rules that he's following, but also creating um, these new rules. Yeah, it's it's a really fascinating study uh, to to watch to watch him work um, because you know, he's able to uh, bring psychopaths to heal, and you know that's something that you know uh, very very few uh, world leaders have ever accomplished um, you know in world history. It's because they're psychopaths. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean that, that's that yeah. you usually have just you know psychopaths fighting psychopaths. Um, and, you know, just not on a personal level, on an individual level, when, you know, you're confronted with a, a psychopath, you know, that, that is, uh, you know, it can be a very dangerous th- thing to try to bring them to heal. You know, um, most of the ad- advice in, in the literature is to basically try to remove yourself and, you know, from, from mm-hmm. their tentacles and, um, and, you know, just remove yourself from their influence. But you know he he doesn't have the option necessarily to remove himself from um, from their influence. So he's got to deal with them in some way, and and in that he's he's basically using uh, their mask against them. Mm-hmm. You know the things that they say that they will do, but they really don't have any intention on doing. Um, but you know just using that to. To basically manipulate psychopaths, which it's, is it's, pretty it's sort incredible. Of, it's sort of the godfather thing. You know, I will 
you know, I will make you the offer that you can't refuse, yeah. and I'll let you look good doing it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That, that's uh, that, I think that's the major thing is that you know he he he. It's it's not a direct confrontation. It is um, uh, fantastic maneuver where you know they are able to uh, save face and um, and look like it was their idea from. From the start, it it is a brilliant move, you know. In the speech that he gave in the past week, uh, he acknowledges the work that's been done with uh, the U.S. in uh, you know pinning down who it is that that's agreed to the ceasefire and uh, looking forward to more negotiations. Um, but you know, like I was saying a little earlier with his other statements, uh, you know, he he is. Balancing that acknowledgement and that seeming willingness to work and do the right thing with these other nations, with the anticipation that when it, you know later on in the day they're just going to come back and 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 try something else. Mm-hmm. Um, so he's juggling these these incredible um, these incredible forces. I mean, he he knows what his intention is, um, and and has to uh, reconcile defending uh russia and and also seeing seemingly and being politically uh kind of true to itself with you know dealing with psychopaths in the form of the u.s Mm -hmm. oh and a lot of the time you know we don't see how brilliant his moves are until you know a couple months after and you're like oh my god you know they've been doing this all along and um you know that that kind of that thought uh, struck me when you know looking at you know just this past week uh, there's been um, some discussion in in the European Union uh, about you know putting some you know embargoes on on Saudi Arabia uh, because of their uh, actions uh, they're killing civilians in, in in Yemen and you know it really comes down to oil um, and you know now that Iran is on the scene, uh, they have they don't you know they're not just going to be dependent on Saudi Arabia uh, as a Middle Eastern source. Uh, Iran can you know have this uh, they they have plenty of oil to, that they that they want to um, get out to you know their old clients that they had uh, pre sanctions. And you know the this whole the whole Iranian deal. You know, it seems very much a part of this overall real war on terror um, because, you know, Iran is such a significant uh, Middle Eastern source of power that can counter Saudi Arabia. Mm-hmm. Uh, so getting Iran, like, on the uh, – to be a part of the international community was really essential, and I think, you know, it – it wouldn't have happened without without Russia, and the way they went about it was just genius because they uh, they did um, initially they agreed to you know they they did not veto the um, uh, it was one of the votes in, in in the UN to end sanctions, so that really put pressure on Iran, and it made it look like you know the, that Russia was was siding with Saudi Arabia and the U.S. etc. 
but you know that that putting themselves in that position um the US didn't think that you know that that Iran would be able to meet all these demands and these deal uh, that that they had that they had to accomplish uh in order to move the deal forward but they did and in doing so uh i, I think you know that being able to um have this counter force being present um in the middle east you know that really it 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 hits Saudi Arabia where they, you know, uh, where it matters most, which is their oil and their money. And their money is going to fund, you know, ISIS. So with Iran posed to, you know, threaten this, they're, they're uh, you know, I, I think, you know, it's, it's not a, a, a huge, huge success because things are still playing out. But, you know, it does... Um, it, it changes the situation, and it's an incremental thing. And you're dealing with such a huge beast um, when we look at, you know, oil and Saudi Arabia and, and, and the money and you know and what they're doing, what they're doing. But I, you know, I, I think you can, we can look at it as a as a major success in, in in terms of you know changing the dynamics. I think the Saudi Arabia is turning into will eventually become more of a paper tiger than anything else. I mean, their their treasury is being bled dry supporting ISIS, and also they're running that dirty little war in Yemen, they don't have a proper military on their own. I mean, an, an actual fighting force, so they've hired the whole thing out. And I've read more than one article saying that they've, you know, their treasury is dropping daily. They actually are talking about raising tax, taxes and cutting some benefits. And Practically, the whole country is kind of on welfare, if you will. So much has been provided for free for so long. And when that dries up, they will have a very unhappy population. Well, uh, yeah, I want to talk about Saudi Arabia a little bit more, but maybe in a few minutes, uh, mm -hmm. just a few more news updates before we move on to the next part. Um, things going on in the world, of course, um, still in Syria. This last week, the, the Kurds in Syria... And not just the Kurds, but all the people kind of living in there, living in that region, because there's a lot of different um, religions and um, just kind of groups that all live in the region, the the north of the country, on the southern border of Turkey. Um, they got together, had this council, and unilaterally declared this. Um, I think they called it something like the Northern Federation of Syria. So they're saying that the that they're kind of declaring a new form of independence because the, the the Kurdish regions of Syria for the past few years have been nominally independent, especially after the, the start of the civil war. Um, but now they've kind of, they've made this, this kind of unilateral decision. And a lot of people are saying that it's because um, they've been left out of the Geneva talks. They haven't been invited. And that was probably most likely at Turkey's behest. They kind of Turkey hates the Kurds and refused to allow them at the negotiating, negotiating table in Geneva. Even though Kurds make up a large segment of Syrian population, they should be involved. And, um, well, that's just kind of the end of that. They should be, and they should be there. They've been one of the, the biggest fighting forces against ISIS. Mm -hmm. they're, and, they're not, and they're supported not only by the Russians, but by the Americans as well in certain ways. So... It is uh, a real travesty that they haven't been invited yet. Um, but on the other hand, Russia has kind of declared their support of the Kurds, and so you'd think that Russia would kind of be defending their interests too, uh, 
on, on, on their part at Geneva. So there's been, like I've seen in, in all the articles I've read about, it, I've seen two main kind of um, analyses of what's going on there. And the first is that, um, is that this, this declaration of, of independence, they're not, they're not seceding from Syria. They say they still, they're still be a part of, of Syria. They just want to be kind of like a, a loose, a, a more, um, like a less centralized government, more loose, loosely governed in a federated system. So, um, but still, this is coming to resemble uh, Kerry's Plan B, which is Brzezinski's Plan A, NATO's Plan A, and Israel's Plan A, which has been the plan all along to to break up Syria into a multi into various little kind of micro nations or micro states to totally just um, hamstring the nation to rob it of any real power or influence, um, which is what they what the what NATO did in Bosnia. Mm-hmm. And so it's just kind of a replay of that game. It's been a plan all along. So on the one hand, it's possible that this is this is kind of a, a U.S. instigated thing, like the U.S. is supporting them and saying, "Okay, well now's the time. You know, you guys do this because now's your time," which is totally kind of underhanded. And the the Kurds would be better off knowing that the that the U.S. doesn't play by any set of you know normal human rules, and you can't trust them as far as you can spit. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand. It could also be a kind of opening gambit for these negotiations because they have been shut out from Geneva. So by coming out and and saying they want full like this, well, full independence within Syria, then Turkey, of course, is getting all angry about that. They will not have it. They don't want any kind of um, autonomous Tur- Kur- Kurdish region in. In Syria, because that could well that that will be just a hotbed of terrorism that will put the south the the Kurdish regions of Turkey in in danger, and then you know what if the the Kurds expand northward and start taking Turkish territory? So the Kurds have a narrative for why they don't want it, which is all basically a projection from Turkey because they basically want that yeah that land yeah because they want the, they I, want I, the I, north I, of I Syria. I can almost see them encouraging it because once it is broken up into all these little little statelets, then it would be relatively potentially easy for them to reabsorb and expand their territory. I mean, you could, you could play it both ways. You yeah. Know? And you, you, you could see the U S I mean, the, the, the U S position is just schizophrenic. I swear. Um, because on the other hand, on the one side of this line, you have the Syrian courage and it's like, go Syrian courage. You're fighting terrorism. This is great. Blah, blah, blah. And on the other hand, they're patting Erdogan on the head and saying, yeah, you got a Kurd problem and you go ahead and you take care of it. And it's like, what? <laughs> Just what? <laughs> but it'll be interesting to see if mm-hmm. if this is a kind of negotiating tactic, so that um, because by making this kind of strong demand, then they then they perhaps can get an invitation to to Geneva on the condition that they kind of soften their demand. Mm-hmm. And uh, I mean, it's standard stuff when whenever there's kind of these big deal negotiations going on. So I guess we're just going to have to. Kind of wait and see how everything plays out. You know, and then from that, from looking at it from that point of view, you could see maybe Russia said, mm-hmm. in order to get yourself at the table, you have to do something fairly drastic. So yeah. I mean, this decision could could be prompted from either side, and we won't know for a while. Yeah, because I, I think it was a few days before this announcement, Lavrov in one of his statements had said that um, that it's it's a travesty that the Kurds aren't at, at Geneva, and it it just. By by having this happen, it threatens that uh, that the Kurds can you know do something drastic and and you know 
And they did. And destabilize the region. And yeah, exactly. That's, that they did. So is it all part of a big plan? Well, who knows? Well, we'll even see. the even the UN guy who's who's gone to you know go, yeah. attend these meetings and give the UN's input has said that the Kurds should be there. I mean, everyone's so, saying it except Turkey. Except Turkey. So what's 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 I mean, who cares? <laughs> they should be there. And well, speaking of Turkey, um, we don't have all the details yet, but I believe it, earlier this morning or last night. There was another bombing, um, I, I believe, also in Ankara. Um, Istanbul. Istanbul. Okay. This yeah, morning yeah. was in Ist- yeah. Ankara. Was last week. This week, yeah. Istanbul. And of course, it's the Kurds' fault. Yeah. Well, I haven't read yet, that yet, but I just uh, there's a little video of it. Apparently, it's an alleged suicide bomber. About f- five people dead, including the alleged bomber. Uh, and like you know, like Joe always says, um, anytime you hear a suicide bomber so quick, it's impossible to know if it was a suicide bombing. Um, without more data. If, mm-hmm. if you've got a person with explosives, even with explosives on them that blows up, even that doesn't mean that it was a suicide bomber. Mm-hmm. Um, because there are just so many... There are, just, there are alternative options that don't even get suggested. It's very easy to strap explosives on someone and coerce them in some way to go in to to go somewhere and do something against their own will and then to to blow them up remotely and yet we don't hear about that we don't hear that brought, brought up as an option anytime anywhere and not only that the the all the kurdish militias on both sides of the borders have have very firmly stated that this is not one of their tactics they just don't do it so that weakens the case right there it's it's just not part of their repertoire well, I mean, yeah, the obvious that that whole suicide bomber uh, slur, which is you know used to just dehumanize the Kurds in general, um, you know, it's it's obvious that Erdogan's been, I mean, he's been waging basically just this genocidal campaign against Kurds within the country. You know, there's reports of um, you know people found burned to death and beheaded in um, in towns in Turkey, Kurdish uh, civilians. And he's, you know, and then, you know, you have these kinds of things come out, you know, these, and then they immediately pin it on suicide bomber in order to justify this increased, uh, this increased crackdown on all the Kurds. Mm-hmm. Well, speak, speaking of Erdogan, uh, it seems that uh, the Turkish government has been making um, some diplomatic uh, trips to Kiev and, uh, and vice versa. And so, uh, you know, you have these two countries. You two have, peas in a pod. Exactly. Yeah. Two peas in a pod, uh, two countries that utterly resent, are jealous of, and, um, and probably hate uh, what Russia has been doing, um, who, who, whose economies have been suffering uh, precisely because they haven't been able to get their act together and behave decently towards Russia. Mm-hmm. Um, they both want into the EU, and that's never going to happen. <laughs> exactly, and they both want Crimea. Uh, apparently, you know, in addition to uh, Poroshenko making comments about uh, you know retaking um, Crimea, and I think uh, Andrew Parabai, one of the um, Peruby, Peruby, one of those militants who uh, who has been um, basically one of the guys responsible for Maidan. Um, and killing both police officers and uh, innocent civilians in order to foment unrest there, and who's been coming to the West and making speeches as a as a kind of welcome diplomat of 
of um, of Ukraine. Um, I mean, these guys speak quite openly about taking back Crimea, uh, which is totally insane uh, on a number of counts. So anyway, you have these two guys. You have Erdogan and Poroshenko, who these peace in a pod, who are now um, kind of uh, aligning themselves with one another. Uh, they're both kind of sending mercenaries, jihadists, uh, to each other's um, territories and and uh, and swapping uh, military uh, equipment and making deals of all kinds. And um, you know, it, it's uh, I guess. Um, I guess Lobachevsky would call it a panorogenic union of sorts um, where they, they recognize something in one another. Um, but uh, it also tells you just how delusional uh, these two guys are and how far gone uh, they've taken their countries in such a short period of time. I think Erdogan, uh, Poroshenko's, well, they're both idiots, but I think Poroshenko's the bigger idiot because Turkey has a lot more to gain from this. Than, than Ukraine does. I think there was the article was called an alliance of misfits or something like that. They they have shared grievances, but um, and Ukraine wants money. They want arms. They want uh, a market for their wheat because they can't sell to Russia anymore. But Turkey, they want a all of the economic benefits of selling them uh, the arms the the wheat, the whatever, but also they are hoping to get their hands on um, what is old Soviet uh, aerospace technology because all those factories are still in western Ukraine. Mm-hmm. And uh, and in Erdogan's mind, this is the beginning of his new Ottoman Empire because they did used to have a good chunk of Ukraine and Crimea. So I think Poroshenko, if he's got two neurons left in his head should, you know, keep his eyes open because I think he's going to get, if he goes for this, he's going to get taken to the cleaners. Well, speaking of suicide bombers, another thing in the news that kind of caught me off guard, apparently yesterday in a series or in one raid in Belgium, they arrested the guy that's been on the run for since November for the Paris attacks, Salah Abdeslam. This was the guy that, uh, the brother of one of the alleged suicide bombers, uh, Brahim, um, he was the guy that rented some of the cars, apparently, and drove with a couple of his friends, drove some of these guys into Paris, and then drove back that same night, and he's been on the run for, for a long time. Now, at the beginning, I thought that it, he was either alive and in hiding, or he'd been caught in that one of those first raids where they said they caught him, but then said, oh, no, we were wrong. We didn't get him in Belgium. And and then had been just kind of either, you know, keeping him keeping him iced to to thaw out whenever they needed him or or um, or killed him or, or whatever. And but apparently this guy has been arrested and they took him alive, which is which kind of made my jaw drop because I can't remember the last time that that someone like this. Uh, a suspect in a terrorist attack has been taken alive, apparently. So he's been arrested. He was injured, and now he is allegedly cooperating with police and sharing information. So I just, I'm just curious what the guy has to say because I, I, from all the reporting on the Paris events, I haven't seen anything that actually links him to being seriously involved. Um, at the all, all there's evidence of that's been presented, and you know, so even then, you know, how much can we trust it? Is that he rented some cars and drove some people in? There's no, 
kind of no real evidence that he knew what was going on, that he was part of this operation in any kind of, uh, you know, knowledgeable capacity. So, I don't know. I'm just I'm just waiting to see what happens with this one. Well, you need somebody for the show trial. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so is it going to be kind of like a, I don't know what they're going to do, if it's going to be a repeat of, like, what happens in the States all the time where they, they're they kept in prison for a while, they show up at their trial, and they're all drugged out mm -hmm. and... <laughs> And, uh, you know, it don't make any sense, like the Aurora guy, Shooter. Um, I don't know. We'll come back to that when we have more on that. But uh, anything else before we move on to uh, to our discussion of, or continue, how, continue our discussion of last week? No? Okay, let's go. Well, maybe we can start with, um, with Saudi Arabia, because we were talking about kind of the rise of, of, radical Islam last week and where it kind of comes from. One thing that we didn't really get into was this thing called Wahhabism, the Wahhabis and the Salafis. And, you know, what is that? You see that? We've, I've seen those words a lot. I didn't know what they meant for years because I was too lazy to look into them. So I rectified that and did a little bit of reading, you know, well over the last years. And there was a good article that uh, we had on SOT by Eric Zeus. He wrote this one in December, and it's on the, the Saudi Wahhabi origins of jihadism. Because this thing called Wahhabism started actually about 250 years ago, 1744, when um, a bunch of preachers um, made an alliance with an aristocracy. So you had this kind of political and religious alliance going on in you know, what is now known as Saudi Arabia, and so there were two guys involved. Well, there was the first Saudi guy, and then there was this guy. Um, what was his name? Wahhabi? Ibn Abdul Wahhabi. Yeah. So that's his name, Wahhabi. And I'm just going to read a couple things from this article first, and then we can talk about them. But uh, so Zeus kind of starts out. He's trying to, trying to be a little bit controversial. So he says that... Um, He's talking about the origins of jihadism, and he says, well, first of all, here's what the origin of jihadism isn't. It's not the Arab-Israeli conflict, nor is jihadism a response to the West's support of the barbarous way that Israel's apartheid government and the vast majority of Israel's Jews treat and historically have treated Palestinians. That's one of the things we talked about last week, about how that, uh, just that in itself will contribute to the, to the success of a kind of radical group, because you have this this grievance, this oppression, and that naturally breeds a response. And a lot of people who respond to that aren't necessarily picky or choosy about who they join up with. They just want revenge. So it's just a natural human response. But Zeus is arguing that's not it. That's, uh, you know, if that, that may be a, a factor, but the origins actually go back a lot deeper. So then he talks about the Sauds and this Wahhabi guy. And then references uh, Zbigniew Brzezinski again. So in 78, he advised President Carter to import pro-Saudi fighters, or Mujahideen, later called the Taliban, into then-Soviet allied Afghanistan in order to create there a wave of terrorism that would drain Soviet resources necessary to, to preserve the Soviet's Afghan ally, and thus help to bring down the Soviet Union. So this was an anti-Soviet operation, and it has now become an anti-Russian operation. So, I mean, the, the origins of the, the modern form of this radical jihad, as we've said, 
I mean, it has it's was first of all um, an anti-Soviet operation. Now it's anti-Russian, and that ties into the whole Operation Gladio uh, Gladio B thing that uh, Sibel Edmonds talks about, and um, kind of just exposes how this has been exploited and used on a level that doesn't get that doesn't get mainstream coverage. And uh, before they uh, were called the Mujahideen, uh, you know, back yeah. Uh, well, 100 years ago, they called themselves the Muhadin, um, because uh, Wahhabi. Uh, this, you know, this guy was, you know, he's a really not a very likable fellow. Uh, yeah, he was. He spent a lot of his time uh, learning with his grandfather the basically the most strict version of Islam. He traveled around the Middle East, uh, becoming uh, really well versed in all the the legalese and you know how to apply the law of Islam strictly. And, you know, it seems like he, you know, he snapped. He was basically a schizoidal character. He comes back home and he's, uh, he develops his, um, uh, what would come to be known as Wahhabism, which is basically, uh, 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 just murder. You know, he, you know, he went around and he organized the stoning of adulterers and, you know, anything that was not strict, uh, what you could, what you would, you know, the average listener would think of as Sharia law was punishable by death or robbery. You know, if you didn't follow that, then you weren't really a Muslim. So then um, he was obviously kicked out of town because the people did not want anything to do with this. Uh, they could tell that it was uh, pathological, and so they were disgusted by it. And a local chief basically said, okay, so you got to get out of here um, or you're dead. And so he leaves town, and he goes to what is the developing House of Saad, um, which was next to the Riyadh at this uh, at this point in time, and they are uh, they are eager for some sort of a a mission. You know, they need some sort of a religious uh, revival, something to politicize to you know enhance their development. So they they accept the Wahhabism and they promise you know political favors and they use it to you know convert people and to spread their uh, their state with messianic zeal. Um, and so then as they, they gain power and influence, um, they, you know, they basically live out this, this schizoidal religion and they start, you know, they massacre, uh, thousands of people at a town called Karbala. Women and children are killed. The Ottoman empire, you know, sees this along with the other neighbors and they think, okay, so these guys are insane and they decide they're a threat to regional peace and they attack them and they crush them. Then you flash forward to world war one and they still hadn't developed yet. The, the Saudis hadn't. Um, but the, the British saw these guys as a useful tool against the Ottoman Empire. So they were turned against the, the empire and they were defeated again. But um, at the same time, other groups were turned against the Ottoman Empire. Obviously, we all know the empire fell, collapsed into numerous different groups. And with the British uh, conniving with the Sykes-Picot Agreement, the Balfour Declaration, they started making different promises to all these different groups, you know, to get them to fight the Ottoman Empire. And then once they did, they turned, they thought they were going to have this grand Arab uh, uh, block. But obviously that wasn't going to be the case. And the British broke their promises and they promised and basically they, they turned to those uh, those Arab nations, those Arab groups um, that had that had helped them, and they said, "Okay, so now if you don't go along with us, if you don't let us uh, create the nation of Israel, we're basically going to turn our uh, muhadin, our Wahhabis, against you. We're going to arm them, and they're going to take you out." And that's what they did. The 
the Saudis were pumped full of, of weapons and they were given a lot of uh, tactical support by the British in order to drive this new reality home for these uh, regional Arab leaders who uh, one of them in particular, Sheriff Hussein or Sharif Hussein, he, um, to the bitter end, he, you know, despite the fact that his sons, his family, um, everyone was telling him just accept the, you know, accept these agreements, just accept that, you know, this territory is going to be part of Israel. Um, until the very end, he, you know, he just tore up the agreements and he wrote his own agreements and sent them back to the British. Obviously, they didn't like this, um, and so this uh, was the this was when you know this ideology of Wahhabism and the the special use of of the you know this um, this schizoidal psych and psychopathic mindset was turned against. Uh, the the Arab bloc and helped to divide and conquer it. And then, you know, basically thanks to guns and oil today, uh, that house of Saad ended up turning into a massive criminal conglomerate that is now, you know, that pretends that it's a state, but is has from the beginning been this pathocratic union that has only, uh, much like the Islamic State, is only kept alive because of massive Western funding. Mm-hmm. Like in the last 200 years, Saudi Arabia was the first Islamic state. Yeah, like, mm-hmm. and so that that's that's where this philosophy, this um, Salafi Wahhabi ideology, comes from. So it wouldn't, first of all, it wouldn't exist without um, this with, without the Saudi regime, and second, the Saudi regime and uh, by proxy this Salafi Wahhabi ideology wouldn't exist without the support they've gotten from the United States. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, that says it all right there. Um, Zeus says that today's jihadism is simply oil, oil and gas funded Wahhabism that got out of control in non-Wahhabist Salafist led countries. And so he includes, includes among those Qatar, Kuwait, Turkey, and the United Arab Emirates and uh, Pakistan, Afghanistan. So that's just a little bit of the like the, the origins of part of the ideology. You can think of Wahhabi Salafis as just fundamentalists, crazy fundamentalists, which are, you know, you, so you can compare them with the crazy fundamentalist Jews, the crazy fundamentalist Christians. These are the people that you'll find in any ethnic or religious group that are just, you're going to have a certain percentage of people that are crazy, mm-hmm. and it just happens to be these guys. And, and unfortunately, they have a whole lot of oil to, yeah. to propel their, you know, so-called ideology. And, you know, it, it's kind of ironic that uh, these Wahhabis are, are taking this uh, supposed strict uh, teaching of, of Islam because they're, they're, <laughs> they don't have uh, – so one of the, one of the main um, – uh, I don't know what you'd call it – one of the main beliefs – is that the 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 source of you know this the sect must be a descendant of of um, Muhammad. Muhammad, and that's not the case with Wahhabism. Mm-hmm. Uh, they they don't claim this uh, direct lineage, so that right there uh, discounts them, um, you know, from from being a, a legitimate for, uh, force in, in the eyes of many Muslims. But someone does claim to be <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> a direct descendant of Muhammad. Who's that? Is it, is Abu Bakr yeah. al-Baghdadi. Baghdadi. Baghdadi. 
I love it when you call me back, Daddy. Daddy. <laughs> well, you know, the, the thing that's, that's you know, I was reading, there's this really great Atlantic article. It's really long. I haven't only gotten halfway through it. But this guy was trying to sort of get across what this Wahhabism is. And uh, uh, Salafist, uh, is, the word actually means the pious, fo- you know, followers of the pious fathers. So these guys, just like really fundy Christians, take an absolutely literal literal view mm-hmm. of but not, the Quran. But not just literal, um, and just like Christians or Jews, it's a literal and selective... Selective application. Application and interpretation. Absolutely. But but this, when, in trying to sort of get across what the idea would be like, is, is uh, imagine if you lived under uh, a culture, a government, that strictly applied the book of Leviticus right down to the stonings. This is this is how they think. It's It's insane. It's completely insane. And with Wahhabism, um, I mean, you you take that you know to the to the absolute extreme, right? And I mean, he's very much adamant that, and you see that in Saudi culture. I mean, that's what we're looking at when you look at and people just feel completely disgusted by it, um, and that's what that's the normal human reaction to this kind of this schizoidal ideology, right? Is that you're normally you're gonna you're gonna be disgusted by it, or you know if you if you aren't just disgusted by it, you just don't believe in it. You know, you're mm-hmm. not a Sunni, you're, you know, you're a Shia. So it's just not really, you, you don't believe in it. Um, or, you know, there's people who, who they look at it and they try to read their own, you know, human understanding into it. And obviously with Saudi Arabia, that beca- that's almost impossible. No, you can't. And so the only people who accept it, I mean, it is a pathological personality is the only kind who can really um, accept it, or people who have been warped by it um, through just growing up, um, not knowing anything else, but growing up in it, and it has that that warping effect on on human character, which makes it such a such a powerful tool when you really think about it. Such mm-hmm. a powerful tool um, for just deforming people and you know basically turning them into these jihadi psychos. Mm-hmm. Well, I've I've got a. A little bit from Ponderology that I want to read. This is in the section of on pathocracy and religion. Because religion, well, Lobachevsky was, was writing about mainly Soviet communism. That was like his, his main experience and the main drive. But like he wrote, he wrote the book to be as, as universal as possible. So he tried to speak in terms of like the generalizations that would then apply to, to any political system. Because that's the, the main point of the book is that it has nothing to do with the ideology, it's with the, the psychopathology behind the ideology. And so that can just as easily apply to religion, and it does. And we see that we've seen it for thousands of years, um, primarily in, you know, with Christianity or the, and the Crusades and the Inquisition and things like that for, for Westerners. Um, but this is from that section. So he writes, The pathocratic phenomenon has appeared many times in history, feeding parasitically upon various social movements deforming their structures and ideologies in a characteristic fashion. It must therefore have met with various religious systems and with a, with a variety of historical and cultural backgrounds. Two basic possibilities for a relationship between this phenomenon and a religious system can thus be adduced. The first occurs when the religious association itself succumbs to infection and the ponderogenic process, which leads to development of the above-mentioned phenomena within it. Basically what he's been writing in the whole book. The second possibility emerges if a pathocracy develops as a parasite upon some social movement whose character is secular and political. This would be like communism in his case. 
which must inevitably lead to collision with religious organizations. Well, on the other hand, I think you can have, um, I, th I think you can have examples of an, like an extreme kind of foreign form of the religion that you follow playing the same effect as kind of a secular thing, but uh, we won't go into that. Kind of like a symbiosis? Yeah. Um, in the first case, the religious association succumbs to destruction from within. Its organism becomes subordinated to goals completely different from the original idea, and its theosophic and moral values fall prey to characteristic deformation, thereupon serving as a disguise for domination by pathological individuals. The religious idea then becomes both a justification for using force and sadism against non-believers, heretics and sorcerers, and a conscience drug for people who put such inspirations into effect. Anyone criticizing such a state of affairs is condemned with paramoral indignation, allegedly in the name of the original idea and faith in God, but actually because he feels and thinks within the categories of normal people. Such a system retains the name of the original religion and many other specific names, swearing on the prophet's beard while using this for its double talk. Something which was to be originally an aid in the comprehension of God's truth now scourges nation, nations with the sword of imperialism. And so he goes on from there. But um, I just thought that was that was kind mm -hmm. of a, a good description of, well, just what we've seen in history and what we're seeing now. Um, any comments before I go on the next one? Well, I just wanted to comment also on ponderology. I can't, I'm only going to paraphrase it, but the idea that different systems call out to different psychological types and this is this is how some people are sort of sitting in bafflement wondering how somebody can up sticks from australia yeah. and go to be a jihadist and uh it's the idea uh specifically seeking i was i was looking into the idea of this whole islamic end times thing they have their own version as well as the christian version and in, in interviewing some of these people, this guy wrote this really good article. He said that these people that he would find there, it's like you weren't, you were raised Methodist. You were raised nothing. Like what the heck? And it, it calls out to the kind of the, the moral and emotional vacuum that these people have. They want something significant. They want to feel like they're part of something important. And also they want certainty. And this is, this is one of those, systems that says you know it's all in the book you just follow the book it's certain the book says this you do that you're going to be fine and and i think that's that's that again that kind of sifting out of the different types um and it's it's pernicious it's terrible yeah and it's there's that black and white thinking which mm -hmm. is very schizoidal and that's actually represented quite well in isis's flag mm -hmm. it's black and white and apparently that was deliberate um, there's a some guy in the CIA probably got <laughs> got a bonus for that little design. <laughs> well, there's a there, when the flag was first designed by um, well, it was I, I can't remember if it was while it was still called um, Al Qaeda in Iraq or right after. It might have been right after in 2006 where they declared the the Islamic State. Um, that was Al Masri and the first Baghdadi, and they designed so they got you know some graphic artist to design this flag uh, on a computer. <laughs> And, but to make it look like it was this old flag, and they deliberately made it black and white, and they wrote this article um, on it that was a 
you know, put online and put on the jihadi websites and stuff. So, of course, yeah, the State Department of the CIA wrote it and then just uploaded it there. Site <laughs> intelligence. But that was one of the justifications that they had is that they wanted it to be black and white because it shows that there's right and wrong and we're right and everyone else is wrong. And so it was this very stark image. Mm-hmm. So at the top of the flag, it says, well, I'm paraphrasing because I don't, I don't remember the exact quote, but the, the, the first line on the top written in kind of this scratchy script is says, there's only one God. And then in the circle, it says, and, and the prophet Muhammad is his only true prophet. And that is in a circle, and that's supposed to be Muhammad's signet ring, his, his uh, mm. yeah. So that's what, the, that's what the flag actually is supposed to represent. Mm-hmm. But continuing on, um, I read a quote, a couple quotes last week on artificially infected pathocracy. There's a, a few more that I want to read to kind of like round out the, round out the picture of, of what's going on because Lobachevsky is describing essentially what we think of as, um, well, color revolution is the term that, that comes to mind now, but also just kind of espionage and the kind of underhanded dirty games that go on in infiltrating and... Um, taking over and replacing foreign governments to one more in more to the liking of the empire involved. Mm. So he talks about how this, this is typically done with kind of spellbinders. So these will be, these will be people that, um, you know, just, uh, they use the mask of ideology to conceal their motives, um, acting as agents of the empire. But he says that in addition to these spellbinders, we can find another kind of preacher of revolutionary ideas, one whose status is basically linked to the money he receives for his activities. However, it's unlikely that its ranks include people who could be characterized as psychologically normal with no reservations on the basis of the above-mentioned criteria. Their indifference to the human suffering caused by their own activities is derived from deficiencies in their perceived value of societal links, or their capacity to foresee the results of their activities. So basically, this is kind of the other side of the, of the equation, where first of all, you've got the, the kind of true believers that are acting in a foreign nation on behalf of you know, their homeland, like the American mm-hmm. Empire. And then you've just got the, the mercenaries, which he's describing mm-hmm. right here. But in, in, in the one case, or in both cases, they're going to be pathological to one degree or another, um, because the spellbinders, he said, you know, t- typically have have some kind of personality disorders, but so do the mercenaries. Um, because you can't be a really good mercenary if you're, you know, if you have if a you're conscience, not, you're not a bit screwed up in the head. <laughs> and so the next part in this section is that people acting in the name of pathocracy's interests may effect their activities in parallel under the banner of some traditional or other ideology or even with the assistance of a contradictory ideology battling the traditional one. So here he's talking about the people that are in other nations. This is, so this is the artificially, artificial infection. So this is the kind of spy game that's going on to, to subvert another nation. So he's saying that in parallel with the, the pathocracy and their ideology, so this would be like democracy and freedom according to the U.S., in parallel to this, that these agents can also use a, a traditional or an other ideology, sometimes even a totally contradictory one, in the nation that they're targeting. So it's not like 
a, a pathocracy like the American Empire will just go into another country and talk about freedom and democracy. They, and I mean, it should be common sense that you go in there and you use something that's going to work. You use something that the people can, that the people you want to take over and manipulate will can get behind to some degree or another. Mm -hmm. So he continues on from that. Uh, in these latter cases, that is the contradictory ideologies, the service must be performed by individuals whose response to the call of the pathocracy is sufficiently vehement so as to prevent the self-suggestive the self-suggestive activities of the other ideology they are using from weakening the links with their actual hopes for power so this is the the danger when you send someone over to another country and you're, they're doing their thing and they're using an ideology that is totally opposite to the one that you are apparently using there's the the danger that they're going to kind of get uppity or um, get their own ideas in their head and say, well, this ideology is great. It's working for me, and I'm just going to ride with it. And, you know, to hell with my American masters now because, you know, what have they ever done for me? I've got an army now. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so this is, this is something that Joe mentioned on the, on the show last week, which is the – or it might have been Neil. I can't remember. But it was, it's one of the dangers of, um, you know, having these vassal countries – and, and these puppet leaders that rule other nations is that, I mean, they're, they're pathological in themselves, so there's always the danger that they're, gonna, that they're going to think, well, you know, what do I need the Americans for? And they, they end up going against the interests of the people that set them up in the first place. Well, let's talk with Erdogan. Yeah. There he is, right there. Yeah. But, I mean, I'm going to be the new sultan. And, the, I mean, the list is endless. Well, it's kind of like, a, I don't know, it was a couple weeks ago, there was this story, it was just pretty hilarious because uh, I don't know if it was the State Department or, you know, some government official came out with saying just how outrageous it was that the um, the politicians in Ukraine are so corrupt. <laughs> <laughs> you know, yeah, that mean, was priceless. Like, like you know, it's <clears throat> it, they're they're there precisely because they are corrupt. I mean, yeah, naturally, they're going to be corrupt. <laughs> I'm shocked. That is I'm their job. Their one responsibility. <laughs> <laughs> now, one other quote from this section. Uh, last one here. So psychological warfare strategists must decide rather early on which ideology would be the most efficient in a particular country because of its adaptability to said nation's traditions. Uh, no, just I phrased that wrong. Because of its adaptability to said nation's traditions. After all, the appropriately adapted ideology must perform the function of a Trojan horse, transporting pathocracy into the country. These various ideologies are then gradually conformed to one's own original master plan. Finally, off comes the mask. So basically, you set up this color revolution, and, um, well, Lobachevsky kind of describes the process about how the, how the agents work and what the, what, the, what the processes are. You set up... Well, you support this kind of homegrown, um, organic, um, Poss possibly legitimate yeah, grievance. Exactly within this this foreign country, and you basically exploit it. Exploit it. It's a it's a Trojan horse, and so then you you get that that party that you're controlling or that ideology that you're controlling in power, and then if there at that point if there's anyone that kind of isn't fully on board with the real plan, you just have a purge. You eliminate them and you bring in your own guys. And by that time, it's secure, and you've got the you've got the nation under control. And uh, I think we so we can see examples of this in failed and um, well successful color revolutions, um, how it, how it happens, and how the how these people get in power. And so you can see that I think in Ukraine, 
Oh, and uh, just the the funny thing, not haha funny, um, but that you know both Wahhabism and ISIS, you know they have uh, they haven't been an effective Trojan horse. Um, the only reason that you know they've they've been they've survived and and grown is through just the sheer money. And and yeah. backing from the United States, yeah, you know, they they haven't gotten any any popular any indigenous support at all. It's it's purely by force they've maintained their their influence. So it, it's it's largely um, an artificial um, element of of the, of the pathocracy. Mm-hmm. So there, there's there's no real uh, support for it, and you know that really speaks to I think you know how fragile it is. Because there are these natural, uh, if you can call them that, these natural pathological organizations that can sustain themselves uh, through, you know, mass acceptance. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, that's pretty much the system that the United States has. Yeah. Um, but, you know, when, when you look in, uh, when you look at the, the Middle East, you know, um, while Wahhabism is in, you know, these... Um, these countries like Qatar and um, Saudi Arabia and uh, United United Arab Emirates and and so on, you know, it's it's uh, it has it's it's not it's not a it's not a populist uh, ideology. It, it's one of the aristocracy, mm-hmm. and you know uh, the the normal people, every you know the normal everyday people, you know they they. they they think it's it's crazy, and it is crazy. Well, it is crazy, and it's it's really just a form of cannibalism. Uh, you know, getting back to the title of the show, why Daesh is doomed. Um, <clears throat> it's this it's this most pathological extension of the United States and Saudi Arabia and Turkey and Israel, and uh, it offers absolutely nothing that's viable or life sustaining or uh, or constructive or creative. It merely uh, takes everything that that was any of those things where it exists, and it rapes it, and um, and so uh, you know it, it, it's the very reason why we haven't yet heard anybody uh, with any amount of credibility uh, speaking at these uh, Geneva conferences or anywhere else offer a kind of an alternative um, you know vision for Syria. It's a freaking joke. Uh, you know, Assad must go, but you're going to replace it with what? Mm-hmm. You know, with who? Who are these people? Uh, they are, uh, they're, they're just these kinds of um, violent uh, anti-people. Uh, they don't have any kind of um, vision for making things better. Uh, they only sustain themselves in the crudest, most corrupt sense that they're capable of. Well, when you say that, it sounds like you're talking about the U.S. Congress too. I, um, yeah, you know, not to that extent, but that that because I was thinking, you know, when you're talking about um, the fact that these pathological regimes aren't accepted um, by the majority of people, you know, they they see it as um, as you know as being foreign, as being repulsive, and as being something to fight against, even if it's internally, you know, for their own psychological sanity. And, you know, you pointed out that, well, in the U.S. it's different, right? That in the U.S. It, this, you know, pathological regime has been accepted. And so, you know, that just, that makes me think, is it, is it a failure of 
the people and a success of the pathocracy in mm-hmm. the United States versus the opposite um, in other parts of the world. You know, I don't know the average, you know, people who really support the ruler, their rulers in Saudi Arabia, but I know that you know, massive bribery has helped them stave off their own Arab Spring and mass, you know, and killings in, you know, during their protests. But when you look at it, this is this, there's this constant um, tension between the pathocracy that is, you know, filled with, with uh, lunatics, with people who just don't have any, um, they, they don't have a conscience. They don't have these, these aspects of humanity, which you would make, would naturally make you kind of repulsed by them. Well, so there's always that, that tension between them. They have to somehow find a way to survive in a, a world of people. You know, that is, that is like their biologically driven goal is to find a way to survive. Because I think that, you know, I remember Lobachevsky in the book, uh, he talks about the fact that it is painful to them that they can't live the way that they want to, the way to do whatever they want to do, what just to satisfy the most base and disgusting desires, you know, to be a Hillary Clinton to be able to kill and murder and laugh and get away with it in front of thousands of people, to stand there on stage and pretend like you're some liberal progressive when you have the blood of thousands of people on your hands. Mm-hmm. That's what that you, they want that. That is the, and they have that in America. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think what, what Daesh is, it is really the, the prime example. It's the, it's the epitome Mm-hmm. of what people like I think Hillary Clinton would actually like. Mm-hmm. It's like this mm-hmm. is the mask off. Mm-hmm. And so all these all these nasty leaders that we have in the West who lead these ostensibly democratic nations and who wear suits and ties and um, you know say their high words in front of the cameras and on their podiums, if you look inside their, their lack of a soul, mm-hmm. Daesh is what they want. This is the thing that psychopaths really want. It's it's the, it's what it's the reality behind the mask. So when you think when you see this uh, like international terrorism, as it's called, when you see what's going on in Raqqa with the the just indiscriminate torture, violence, murder, rape, slavery, all these things, this is what psychopaths just you know would get off on. It's it's the world. It's their utopia, where they can get away with whatever they want. And no one can do anything about it. And when we look at ISIS, Daesh, they, they, they ostensibly are a state. They call themselves the Islamic State. They do have control over a, a relatively large segment of Syria and Iraq and some major cities. And they, do ha- they have organized a kind of government system. So they do have uh, police and some kind of infrastructure to, to kind of keep their power. And taxes. And taxes, yeah. And the... So, on the one hand, they are they are a, a government, they are a state, but they're this kind of Frankenstein-monster hybrid that goes against any kind of natural law because, like like uh, Shane was saying, a pathocracy, a successful pathocracy, doesn't develop like, like that. Like I said last week with, with the primary and secondary ponderogenic unions, the primary ones, just the criminal mobs, don't get power. They don't achieve political power and over an entire nation. It just doesn't happen naturally. The only way it happens is with foreign support by a real, uh, like a real pathocracy, like in the United States. 
So the only reason that, that Daesh has been able to form this kind of pseudo-government is through their support. And it's why they need so many foreign mercenaries, because they can't get the, the, the kind of local support so that they could actually have enough Syrians and Iraqis to, to take over. They need all these foreigners because there, there just aren't enough people in Iraq and Syria who would be, be able to get behind this kind of psychopathology. So they, they, they've only been able to sustain themselves with foreign money, foreign power, foreign support from the Gulf states, from the U.S. And that's really all there is to it. Mm -hmm. And, um, well, I'm reading a book right now by uh, an ex-State Department guy. He also works for the Brookings Institute. And <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah so, so Brookings Institute. Yay! <laughs> no, no, no. Yeah, that's it, that's it, okay. We've got a, a polarized crowd today. <laughs> um, Radicalized. <laughs> but so this book, it's called The ISIS Apocalypse, and it kind of focuses on the, the apocalyptic doomsday vision of the ISIS cult. And in it, uh, well, it is, first of all, like, so, I mean, being, being kind of up there in Brookings and in the, you know, as an advisor in the kind of U.S. empire, um, you can guess um, that you can you can guess what he won't say in this book, and you'll be right because he doesn't say any of that. But on the other hand, it's a it's a he's a good writer. There's a lot of interesting tidbits because he basically presents the narrative. So this is the the story that you can glean by reading the news, reading leaked documents, um, um, you know, following the the jihadi Twitter and all that stuff. Like so, this is this is what's there for public consumption if if people like can read Arabic and want to know what's out there, whether it's true or not, like what the validity of validity of all these sources is, is another question because one of the, like he says that uh, out of the dozens of ISIS books that have been published in the, in the last year or two, um, one of the advantages of his is that he does speak Arabic. He does read the, he can read the original sources. And um, so he, he's tried to use what he considers to be the primary sources. So this includes like online statements, videos, um, and alleged letters between kind of leadership of all these jihadi organizations, whether it be ISIS or Al-Qaeda um, or their affiliates in all these different countries. So, um, and of course, I've got questions about the validity of those letters, of course, but, uh, but, it, but like I said, it's interesting just to be able to see what the narrative is um, from these documents. So whoever's writing these letters from bin Laden, if it was bin Laden himself, which I doubt, because I think it's probable that he died uh, very early on, like perhaps end of 2001. Um, but regardless of, of that, they, they tell a story, and it's pretty interesting because um, the, uh, the official kind of story of how ISIS came about was that um, there was this group called Al-Qaeda in Iraq, before that, it, was, it wasn't associated with Iraq. This was so the, the U.S. invaded and occupied Iraq, and there were all kinds of insurgencies, these militia groups that, that turned up and, and were, um, you know, fighting the American occupation. And so this Zarqawi guy kind of came in. He started his own group, and then he eventually ended up, um, you know, pledging his allegiance to, to bin Laden. And 
his thing was he was really the source of this apocalyptic worldview. Because before that, um, bin Laden and al-Qaeda had never really gone there, um, never really focused on prophecies or um, going into the kind of fundy Christian type attitude towards what was going on in the Middle East. Mm-hmm. When you read this book and you, when you read these like a- alleged letters from bin Laden to all these groups, he actually comes off sounding as a moderate rebel. Like he's he's very moderate. He sounds like a, a U.S. State Department kind of representative. And uh, McCants, gee, gee, I wonder why. Yeah, McCants, the author of this of this book, even has a few kind of like they're intended to be. I think just kind of funny comments where he makes the comparison. But I don't, he's probably more um, correct than he thinks when he's when he says that, because I mean, um, like there was Al, so there's Al Qaeda. Uh, you know, Bin Laden and, Z- and Zawahiri, and they're writing these letters. Um, these other groups never have any kind of one-on-one contact with them. They just contact by these by these letters. So, you, yeah, I mean, well, it's just ridiculous on that. But in these letters, what these people are saying is that they're, they're constantly, like, chastising these al-Qaeda affiliates and saying, you know, what are you guys doing, um, you know, torturing and, and killing civilians? It's like, you can't do that. You need, we need popular support. We need the, the, the local populations to love us and support us so that we can create a state. So bin Laden's whole idea, or pseudo-bin Laden, whoever's writing these letters, is that you need to actually create like a, a semi-legitimate like government that provides services to your people like water and medicine and food and safety and security. And you need to get their support. And only after you have their support and you're actually in a position of you know, being a responsible uh, government or, or leadership can you then declare an Islamic state because one of the you know official propaganda um, goals of al-Qaeda is, has been to to declare an Islamic state they've just never gotten there because like when you read when you read about all these groups first there was al-Qaeda in Iraq and and Zarqawi and he like at, well he wanted to declare a state he was very apocalyptic after he allegedly died in 2006 his successor al-Masri declared the Islamic State. That was the origin of, of Islamic State. It was 10 years ago. And, um, and then bin Laden was like, well, in, in, in private in these letters, he was kind of chastising them and says, you know, you shouldn't have done this. It's, it's not a good idea. In public, though, al-Qaeda was supporting you know, their, their brothers in, in Iraq. And, but then there was the al-Qaeda in the, Arab, in the Arabian Peninsula, in Yemen, and then al-Qaeda in, uh, in Maghreb, and so in these African nations and, the, and in the Middle East, there are all these kind of affiliate al-Qaeda groups that kind of ostensibly were trying to follow the official al-Qaeda line, which was to gain this popular support, you know, gain alliances with all the local tribes, don't push, on, don't, don't push too many buttons, um, don't institute Sharia law like our, and, and our kind of punishments right away because people won't accept it. You need to be very accommodating to the local people in order to establish yourselves. And then, uh, you know, only then can you kind of um, go a bit further. But what always seems to happen is that these affiliate groups kind of go the full retard and, and so engage in, in torture and, and murder, and they turn the local populations against them. And so that's why in every, in every one of these affiliate you know, al-Qaeda cases, they, they just fall apart and they aren't able to establish their Islamic state. So that's the narrative of what's been going on, um, how... Al-Qaeda has wanted to, to create these Islamic governments in all these nations. They've had these affiliate groups that go in there and try to make alliances and try to get the people behind them. In some cases, they do get some popular support at first, but very quickly it turns around because their, the, their so-called brothers 
always end up um, getting a little bit naughty and 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 disobeying you know big baddy big daddy bin laden and uh or big daddy Baghdadi in in iraq and so it never kind of happens so i'm thinking to myself okay well what's you know that's the narrative what's really going on and it seems to me that there's there's it 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 fill it fulfills two kind of aims because first of all um despite what a lot of people in the u.s say and think al-qaeda and islamic terrorism is really a um uh, it's something that a lot of people in the real American leadership want and need. They need this external enemy and they use that external enemy. It gives them an in into very into several nations, either nations they want to destroy or nations they want to take over or influence, um, you know, nations that go against the American empire in one way or another. It's a, a very, uh, very easy pretext that, oh, Al-Qaeda's in your country, we're going to come in and take them out. We're going to ally with your local tribes and we're going to fight Al-Qaeda and oh, now we just happen to be there, and we've just you know a lot of your people are dead. There's no real um, secure government. I mean, damn Al Qaeda. Yeah. We better get your oil then. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and 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 you know we'll help you out. Yeah. And so so on one, on the one hand you've got your like State Department Bin Laden, who is actually giving these like pretty kind of reasonable um, uh, policy lines on you know you you. Don't just torture and kill people. You actually start, you know, try to be a good leadership. So, th- and this gains supporters. So, I mean, the the U.S. needs supporters of Islamic terrorism. Otherwise, they wouldn't have an enemy. And so, so that fulfills that purpose. On the other hand, you get the groups like Zarqawi, um, Zarqawi's Al Qaeda in Iraq, which later became ISIS, who from the very beginning said, "Okay, we're not we're not doing it that way." And so, for for from its origins, ISIS has been the kind of um, pathological problem child that is just explicitly uh, pathological, and so even looking at these at these Bin Laden letters, it was obvious it would be obvious from the beginning that these guys would never get popular support because even Al Qaeda, who were presenting themselves in this moderate light with the, with this official you know or semi official Al Qaeda propaganda, were not able to get popular support in any of the countries in which they were uh, trying to do their thing. So uh, so what purpose does a group like ISIS serves? Well, it obviously isn't designed for the purpose to actually create a viable state. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not like, um, well, just as a little aside, the, the whole plan B for Syria is to, to break Syria up into at least three um, different regions. You've got the the primarily Alawite West, which would be kind of that's uh, um, would be Assad's portion, and you've got the Kurdish North, and then you'd have the the Sunnistan, the um, uh, that would be the 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 east of the country, like Deir Ezzor and Raqqa, mm-hmm. next to Iraq. But the 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 justification for a Sunnistan that these guys gives, like uh, I think it was Michael o- O'Hanlon, well, one of these neocon guys, neocon writers, he was writing about this idea and how it was necessary for for Syria, it was the only way Syria would be able to get out of its civil war was to break up the country because uh, um, the justification he gives for the Sunni stand is that the, the Sunnis in in the eastern uh, region of Syria kind of allied themselves with, with ISIS. But no, they didn't. ISIS is, is living there as a terrorist state. They don't have popular support. They don't have the support of the people in Syria. The only reason they're there is because of the, the number of guns that they have and the 
the, the, the amount of support they have in order to sustain themselves in that region. Mm -hmm. They're not there because they have any, any kind of real support among any of this local Syrian population. So right there, that just cuts out any justification for a Sunni stand in the region because, like, Daesh wasn't democratically elected and they wouldn't be. Mm -hmm. It would never happen. The people in, in Raqqa are, are just are eager to rise up. There have been, like, instances in the last week since the, the beginning of the kind of push for Raqqa of these um, kind of this anti-ISIS insurgency in Iraq. Well, and, also, also being on, on Raqqa. the rest, the western side, it, it leaves kind of this festering sore on the door, festering sore on the doorstep of Iran or of Iraq. So that just keeps that whole area in turmoil. Mm -hmm. yeah. So the 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 purpose of the real purpose of of Daesh would never is is not an Islamic state. I mean, you may have the the kind of some of the crazy people involved, the the fanatic. Um, like Wahhabi guys that actually believe this, that want to, to declare an Islamic state. But in the end, it's, it, it's an impossible goal for these guys. And if they are serving a purpose, it is only the purpose to destabilize mm -hmm. the regions in which they're found mm -hmm. and to create total chaos, to kill people and torture them and, and just cr to ruin countries. That's it. It's like what happened in Libya. That is the purpose of a group like Daesh. Well, the, the, the background for, you know, a, a lot of these commentators uh, in, in saying, you know, that the existence of uh, ISIS or the, the growth of ISIS is coming from, you know, this civil war. And, you know, they, they've used the same, uh, the same line uh, in Iraq and um, Libya and, you know, saying that there are these that there's this, this, these factions between uh, Sunnis and Shia when, you know, really, like, that's, that's, it's, it's completely bogus. You know, these, um, these people have lived, you know, alongside one another for, you know, uh, uh, centuries. centuries. Yeah. And, you know, and, you know, before Iraq, you know, is it, it very much like, uh, you know, a Catholic and Protestant, you know, kind of, you know, just, intermingling and you know that there, there there was no there was no there's no conflict there there's no civil war the whole civil war idea was it was just cooked up mm -hmm. and you know that there's there's not there's nothing there is, is basically what i'm saying you know it, it's completely bogus well isn't that what lavrov said all you had to do was stop stop sending the money stop sending them guns they'd, they'd vanish within a month mm -hmm. right so, there is you just have this uh this amorphous mercenary uh all these amorphous mercenary groups uh whether you know they're paid they know that they're working for blackwater or they're paid they think they're working for al-qaeda they think they're getting messages from bin laden um all of these amorphous groups uh that are manipulated in which you can then paint you just paint a narrative your dynamic narrative to whatever the situation is whether it's in ukraine or whether it's in syria or it's in iraq or it's in China, you know, wherever it takes place, you know, if you, you need, uh, you know, a couple thousand mercenaries, obviously it was very easy for them to um, flood Libya with thousands and just, you know, the Moriarty's claimed up to 250,000 uh, terrorist fighters, you know, flooding through the country. You have a bunch of people, you know, it really fits into ISIS's uh, apocalyptic framework, you know, because... You know, they are, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. 
the U.S. has, you know, created this apocalyptic conditions. ISIS is continuing to fulfill those apocalyptic conditions. People, you know, will get sucked into that. Um, there's, and, you know, it's been going since the, the 80s with the Mujahideen, perhaps even earlier. But this re large recruitment process creates the, all of these uh, people who are, um, you know, plenty of psychopaths probably um, that are just a phone call away. You know, call somebody, they call another person, and you've got... Mm -hmm. All of these people who had, a, you know, you can snap your finger and, oh, boom, now you've got a color revolution. All these, oh, look at Chavez. He's firing on his own his own supporters, you know. And now we've got to do something about that. You know, he needs to be taken out. Or, ah, Gaddafi, he's killing his own his own people, you know. Ah, we've got to do something about that. But obviously this dynamic narrative never includes these strange, or, you know, the Paris terror attacks. It never includes these strange figures that are there just killing people. You know that are initiating or that are the catalyst for their you know whatever regime change color revolution strategies that they have. Well, and you know you look at the countries where these conflicts have happened, and they're secular societies: mm -hmm. um, Iraq, Libya, Syria. You know they're very diverse, very accepting of you know all all sorts of beliefs, and. That's not the type of environment where um, that that invites you know these these so-called civil wars. It's this direct uh, directed intervention of these fundamentalists, this insertion of these ideologies in, into these uh, communities that um, that has you know created this chaos. Well, that kind of uh, that kind of brings me to. Um something we started discussing several months back in our discussion of UFOs. Uh, Harrison, you brought up a book called The Powers and the Principalities. And um, at the time, um, we brought up the idea that there is this, uh, this kind of uh, almost metaphysical um, power or, uh, or energy or force that exists uh, through uh, institutions, governments, um, corporations, uh, which almost has its its own life. Um, and uh, a few months after you mentioned that, uh, a friend of mine had sent a book to me called Engaging the Powers, which is a further discussion of this idea that, that there is this um, uh, almost uh, interweaving, intertwining um, uh, malevolent as well as benevolent force that acts uh, within and through uh, various um, organizations. And um, this book, Engaging the Powers, Discernment and Resistance in a World of Domination, uh, written by Walter Wink, who uh, took a tour through Central America and had uh, witnessed uh, quite a number of um, really appalling, uh, horrific things that the U.S. government was doing in, in Central and South America, and uh, had re-examined um, a lot of the New Testament uh, to see what, in fact, it was saying about evil. And, um, and what he was able to decode was that a lot of the material in the New Testament is actually a discussion about resisting the domination system. And uh, prior to that, I think I had only uh, understood uh, what may have been valid about the New Testament in terms of... Um, comparing the beast uh, in Revelations to uh, our understanding of torture today or um, 
the number 666 uh, being symbolic or indicative of our banking system and the Visa card, uh, various kinds of uh, domination that we see coming full force uh, in society and, and geopolitics right now. Um, so I hope we get into this a little bit in the future, um, but uh, he gives a, a, a kind of a, an excellent um, analysis of, of how these powers exist uh, in a way that, um, that have a life of their own and that have, um, you know, we, we compared Daesh to Frankenstein's monster, uh, that it was only intended to, to, to be a certain thing. Uh, but um, here he quotes um, a piece from John Steinbeck's The Grapes of Wrath, um, which I'm going to read. The owners of the land came onto the land, or more often a spokesman for the owners came. Some of the owner men were kind because they hated what they had to do, and some of them were angry because they hated to be cruel, and some of them were cold because they had long ago found that one could not be an owner unless one were cold, and all of them were caught in something larger than themselves. If a bank or a finance company owned the land, the owner man said, the bank or the company needs, wants, insists, must have, as though the bank or the company were a monster with thought and feeling which had ensnared them. These last would take no responsibility for the banks or the companies because they were men and slaves, while the banks were machines and masters all at the same time. The owner men sat in the cars and explained, You know the land is poor. You've scrabbled at it long enough, God knows. The squatting tenant men nodded, and wondered and drew fingers in the dust. And yes, they knew, God knows, if the dust only wouldn't fly, if the top would only stay on the soil, it might not be so bad. Well, it's too late, and the owner men explained the workings and the thinkings of the monster that was stronger than they were. You see, a bank or a company, those creatures don't breathe air. They don't eat side meat. They breathe profits. They eat the interest on money. If they don't get it, they die, the way you die, without air, without side meat. It's a sad thing, but it is so. It is just so. The bank, the monster, has to have profits all the time. It can't wait. It'll die. No taxes go on. When the monster stops growing, it dies. It can't stay one size. We have to do it. We don't like to do it. But the monster's sick. Something happened to the monster. Sure, cried the tenant man, but it's our land. We measured it and broke it up. We were born on it, and we got killed on it, died on it. Even if it's no good, it's still ours. We're sorry. It's not us. It's the monster. The bank isn't like a man. Yes, but the bank is only made of men. No, you're wrong there. Quite wrong there. The bank is something else than men. It happens that every man in a bank hates what the bank does, and yet the bank does it. The bank is something more than men, I tell you. It's the monster. Men made it, but they can't control it. And that's what I think about when I see these entities like Daesh or ISIS uh, or Azov Battalion or the IDF or uh, Academy, Blackwater, DICOR, 
they're all part of the same thing. There's this dominatrix, dominatrix, <laughs> this dominator system that exists in the world that uh, seems to be growing right now at a rapid clip. And uh, it's made up of men. You know, people in Congress and the Senate may have some idea as to how it was created or what they did to perpetuate it, but they have no uh, understanding of its implications and of the the power that it's grown of its own accord. So, um, you know, we explain it quite often in terms of psychopathy and a, and a growing uh, panorogenesis and panorization of societies and of groups. Um, but I think it's also safe to say that uh, there are these other um, these other things, these other influences uh, that um, feed into uh, these systems, and um, and we're watching it. We're watching it happen today, just as just as uh, we're watching people wake up today and forming networks of people who are becoming aware of how all of this exists and resisting the domination system. So hopefully, in the next few weeks, we can elaborate a little bit more on this. All right, sounds like a plan. Mm -hmm. And on that note, uh, I think we're going to end the show coming up on the end time. So unless anyone the, has any... The end time or the end times? <laughs> the end times. <laughs> Doomsday is approaching. No. <laughs> it's just the end of the show. In five, four. No. Okay. Any, any, any final thoughts before the end times? Well, I just was thinking about, about that quote and thinking that um, it could be a monster, but I... I one could take exception to the idea that men hate it, like the banks. Mm -hmm. There are those who joyously support it, yeah. and the yeah. monster is made is made of men who joyously support it. Yes, it, it could only become the monster if they existed too. Yes. Yeah. All right. And that's all I have to say about that. <laughs> On that note, <laughs> thanks everyone. Uh, thanks for the chatters. Thanks for listening in. And we'll see you next week. Make sure to tune in tomorrow for Behind the Headlines, um, 1 p.m. Eastern Time. I don't know what time that is in any other time zone because time zones are stupid <laughs> with daylight savings and all that. And then on Friday, Health and Wellness at, well, if they do the same time they did this week, it'll be at 11 p.m. or 11 a.m. Um, Eastern Time. So thanks, everyone, and take care. Thanks, everybody. <laughs> Take care. Bye-bye. Oh, Bye. I played, I played the wrong exit music. <laughs>